0: Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5, John chapter 5, and we're going to explore uh, something important. Uh, it is the title that Jesus goes by very often called the Son of God, and we throw the title around, we say it lightly, we just attach it to him like we attach the title Christ, as if it's his last name. We. Call him the Son of God, as if everyone understands what that means. But the question is, can we articulate what that means? Are you able to describe to somebody, what does it mean that Jesus said that he is the Son of God? And how is that significant? And how is it different from other conceptions of sons of God, as, as we find like in the Old Testament, or we find in the ancient world, the context in which Jesus came? There were concepts in other religions of the idea of being a son of God. Is it Jesus something different than that? Is what he is connected to that? Well, the answers are in the scriptures. And we're going to see, with the help of the reaction of the Jewish leadership to what Jesus said, is that his claim to be the son of God was profoundly significant and entirely unique among all the titles given among people. Throughout all of history. So, we're going to take a look by going to John chapter 5, and I want to touch on some other texts that I think will be helpful in that time. And uh, I want to start by just telling us up front what is the point, what we have to say today. And I want to describe it this way By Jesus constantly calling God his Father, and appealing to the divine authority and power that was given to him, Jesus sets himself apart as the unique Son of God, different from all the other conceptions of what a Son of God is or will ever be. And so because we're working from the same passage in which we worked last week, there's going to be some overlap here when we talked about him being the Son of Man, but we're also going to to delve into kind of some new territory here. I'm going to read the text from chapter 5, verse 18, all the way through verse 47. It's a long passage, but what I want you to do is, as you follow along, I want you to look for Jesus using this constant term, Father, and what he means by it. And that will help us to to understand what he means by calling himself the Son of God, which only appears once in the passage. But what he claims all around this about his relationship with the Father and the authority and power given to him is clearly making the statement of an equality with God himself. So let's take a look at the scriptures here, starting in verse 18. And what just happened here as we come to verse 18 and we are, you know, meet the text here, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And believe it or not, there's actually rules against healing on the Sabbath, (laughs) along with a bunch of other things you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish authorities were upset by what authority are you doing this? Well, some of the things that Jesus began to say, he said, oh, my father's been working until now, and now I'm working. And they took this as him claiming to be equal with God. And what we're going to see is rather than to calm their fears, rather than to kind of spin what just happened and what he just said, no, Jesus doubles down on it. And he makes it even worse in the eyes of the leaders, but even more beautiful in the eyes of his people. Starting at verse 18, here's what it says. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these words of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for their sensibility even to us today as the things as he railed against those who opposed him, those who did not believe. Lord, we, we find a little bit of ourselves in those. For to the extent that we do not obey Christ, we lack faith. And the indictment stands against us as well. So let us heed his words. Let us take them in, understand what he is saying, and worship him as the Son of God. We thank you, Lord, for these words, and we ask you, Lord, to write them upon our hearts that we might not sin against you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in verse 25 there the, is the the phrase there, the Son of God. And it occurs a great many times in the New Testament. And in fact, 43 times in all in the New Testament. 26 of those times in the Gospels. So it's more in the Gospels than the rest of the New Testament. And in John it appears nine times. So he has more than his fair share of Son of God phrases in the Gospels. Uh, Gospel of John, four times the phrase is said by Jesus and four times it's said by others and as as debating is is this the one or in affirming yes it is the one, it is the Son of God. And then once it is mentioned by John oddly enough in what is his purpose statement of the gospel in John chapter 20 verse 31 where he says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing may have life in his name. So along with being the Christ, him being the Son of God, is critically important to salvation in Christ, to understanding who he is. And so John uses this word in a way that is very helpful, and that is very profound in its importance. If we look uh, back here in our passage, though, Uh, and, And we begin to expand our search for the Son of God into the other Gospels, and we see what it says. Do you realize it's uttered quite a number of times by Satan and demons? It's uttered a few times by the disciples themselves, and one of those times is when Peter makes the statement, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, where he adds living in there. It's also used by the Jewish authorities as they press him on the issue. Are you the Son of God? Be plain, tell us if you're the Son of God. John the Baptist uses it of Jesus very clearly. And here we have in our passage before us in John 5, Jesus uses it of himself. Referring to himself as the Son of God. And very interestingly, at the end of the Gospels, during uh, at the end of the crucifixion, when Jesus gives up his life upon the cross, the phrase is uttered by a Roman centurion. It may have meant something utterly different to him than the way that Jesus meant it, but nevertheless, it caused that phrase to come to his lips. This phrase, then, after the Gospels, is used once in the book of Acts. It's used four times by Paul. Four times in the letter to the Hebrews alone. It's used seven times by John in his first letter. He's rather hung up on the phrase in that letter. And it's used once in the beginning of the book of Revelation. So that's where the New Testament uses the phrase and we'll get more to exactly how and what it means later on. But we go into the Old Testament and you will not find the phrase Son of God. You will find the phrase the plural sons of God several times. And you'll find elsewhere the concept of being a son of God particularly in connection to Israel's kings. And We see it in places like Psalm 2 verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today I've begotten you. And This psalm here is a, a psalm of David that, that speaks of uh, God's relationship with his appointed and anointed king. Very important psalm, and we know this is quoted in the New Testament as speaking of Jesus, who indeed is called the Son of God. And then here in Psalm 89, it's speaking of the king, and it says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And an Israelite could hear that and say, Amen, that's talking about our king, that's our guy." But we read it, and in hindsight, with the help of the New Testament, we recognize, yeah, it's also speaking of Jesus who is of the line of David, who is the firstborn from the dead, who is the highest of the kings of the earth, being called King of kings and Lord of lords. And so those are important for us to help us understand. What does Jesus mean by saying he's the Son of God? Now, you'll find it several times concerning the heavenly beings uh, in Genesis and the book of Job as meaning being called the sons of God. In Psalm 82, is an important psalm about that. You'll find Israel being described as God's son. That is, the, the nation, not just the man, but the nation, being called God's son. And so what do we conclude from the Old Testament? Well, it's used in a variety of ways. The Lexham Bible Dictionary defines it like this. It says the term usually serves to designate special agents of God's will. And the recipients of his love. And if we look at that definition, that summary, after after perusing through the Old Testament material, and Jesus, Jesus then using the Son of God idea for himself, we see indeed, yes, he does speak often of doing the will of the Father. In fact, in the context we just examined. And he also speaks often of the love of the Father for the Son. That special love that is shared only between them, but then extended to the body of Christ in John chapter 17 per Jesus' prayer. That this is a love that his people are involved in. And so will and love are very important words. What we're to understand about what it means to be son of God. There's also some historical text to be considered, some historical context Uh, that we need to see as well. The ancient Jewish context uh, looks like this, that Son of God appears in some of the texts, some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of the other writings that came in that period between the Testaments, where Son of God is sometimes connected to what's clearly a Messianic or a line-of-David kind of kingly figure. In some of those writings, a merely righteous person is called a Son of God. And in some of those writings, the future restored people of Israel would be called sons of the living God. But what about the Roman world? Because Jesus didn't come just to Israel. I mean, he came primarily to them. He came first to them. But he came to them in a context in which they have, had been immersed in Greco-Roman culture for about 300 years. And they're they're living in Roman-occupied Palestine at the time. And so, what does it mean to them? Well, it was used often for Roman rulers. In fact, uh, we find inscriptions that read, Emperor Caesar Augustus, Son of God. And Julius Caesar himself, after his death, the Senate got together and said, Was he divine? And they go, Oh yeah, he was divine. He was a son of God. And that made Octavian, Julius Caesar's son, effectively a son of a divine being, a divine man. So the phrase was not unknown to the Romans. They had their own concept, their own idea of what this was, which is a little different than the biblical idea, obviously. And it's interesting that the uh, introduction to Mark, as he opens his gospel, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it parallels an inscription concerning Caesar Octavian when he was born and describing his birthday as the birthday of a god and the beginning of his good news for the world. So it's kind of an interesting thing that we see here, this this influence, this taking a look at the Roman world. Let's bring them in on this so that they can understand this. And we'll use this term. And of course, we talked about earlier, the Roman centurion speaking this and exclaiming it and seeing the manner of Jesus' death, said, he said, surely this was the son of God. But I want to turn really to the importance of this, that Jesus is a unique, he is the unique son of God because we saw in the Old Testament, you know, it's used in the plural several several ways, it's never directly connected to the Messiah, the sonship idea of the early kings, the line of David, we saw that, we saw in a Jewish context, yeah, there were multiple uses of it, only a very few really attached to a messianic figure, but it's not really a fully developed thing. If you had stepped into the ancient world and you, you asked the average Jew on the street or even the leaders and said, what, what is the Son of God? Who is this Son of God? You would have a variety of answers because it wasn't a solidified, definite, certain, singular thing. But that's the point. Because what Jesus Christ did is he didn't come and step into a role that people had figured out. He didn't come and occupy something that people had described or that people had asked for or that people prescribed. He came and he established the role of Son of God. He defined it as he does here in John chapter 5. See, the use of the phrase is in the New Testament, Jesus talking about himself, the gospel writers talking about who he is, and in the apostles' writings, bringing something new. And what we saw there in John chapter 5 is Jesus continually claiming equality with God. And last time we looked at some of the specific things that he claimed equality in, like authority, the work of God. He claimed equality in the ability to give life and judgment and honor, to receive honor. But there's other important unique issues that we also, because of the material we're given in the Gospels, because of the things Jesus says and the things the apostles say later in the letters, there's other important aspects to him being the unique, the one and only Son of God. As a matter of fact, if you go back, you'll find a a sermon on monogenes, where he is the unique Son of God where that word designates he's one of a kind. And it's things like this that make him one of a kind. He was born of a woman, but not conceived by a man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God himself. Read about that in the beginning of Luke, and we'll be talking about it in the Christmas season as it comes. All the other sons of God mentioned in the the Bible, whether they're angelic beings or, or other kinds of heavenly beings or human beings, They're all created things. He is the uncreated one. He is the preexistent one. John opens his gospel with the notion, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. So Jesus was there all along. He was preexistent and always the son of God. And listen how Jesus describes his preexistence when he prays, For you and I, he prayed for his disciples, but also those that would believe that came after them. And he says it like this. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your presence, your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here the son says to the father, bring me that glory, that glory I had even before the world existed. See, some have the false notion that God created the world and created the garden and put Adam and Eve in it and they sinned and he was surprised. Oh, what are we going to do? Well, we need to develop this idea of a son of God to go and save them. No, there was a son of God already. There was a father and there was a son and there was a Holy Spirit. He's uncreated as affirmed by the church for a couple thousand years. The church described him early on as one substance with the Father. And that can never be said of the other Elohim, of the angels, of Adam, or anyone else. So it's important to understand the reaction of these Jewish authorities. The Jewish authorities react, and it will take us back there to the beginning of the passage we read, 5.18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, that seems to be the minor point, but the major point is, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It wasn't unheard of for Jews in that day to refer to God as their father. What was unheard of was someone describing God as his father and then itemizing specifically how he is identical to the Father in his power, his authority, his role of judgment, his ability to give life, and all these things. And so what you have and what you need to understand is when you read John chapter 5, it's not that one time he uses the phrase Son of God. It is that time and time and time again, he claims things to himself that could only be true of God. So by constantly calling God as Father, appealing to the divine authority, power given to him, Jesus Christ sets himself apart as a unique Son of God. So now today, after we've gotten the New Testament, after we've had all this revelation, after we understand what Jesus meant by this and the weight of what he was saying by this, we acknowledge the other uses of the terms of sons of God. In fact, we even acknowledge as John opens his gospel, it says, To all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, literally, that's sons of God, but the translators didn't want to exclude anybody. Children of God. But yet, not in the same way that Jesus is a child of God, that he is the Son of God. And we recognize there's only one unique Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who claims to perfectly do the will of the Father. Why can any human being do the will of the Father? Do you know it's the will of the Father that the universe holds together? And the Bible presents the universe being held together as an active thing that Jesus is doing. In other words, he doesn't have to come at the universe and destroy it if he wanted to. He just has to stop thinking about it for a minute. He holds all things together. He does perfectly the will of the Father. That cannot be accomplished by a human being. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because you're surrounded by a great number of people who believe and suggest that Jesus was merely a man or that Jesus was a created being that became God. And, oh, okay, so a human being somehow now has the ability to hold the universe together? Now has the ability to read the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of every human being who lives now and has ever lived in order to properly and rightly judge them in the last day? A human mind could do that? A merely human mind can give life to whom they will? even granted the privilege by the Father, how could they keep up? People are being born every moment and people are dying every moment. This is not the work of a human being. This is not the authority that can be granted to a human being. And this is important because Why is it important to fully understand what Jesus means when he says I'm the Son of God? When he says, I do the will perfectly of the Father, I have all authority to judge, all authority to give life. What it means to you and me is if this is true, then he has every right to demand of me anything in his will. Did you catch that? if he has all that power in John chapter 5, he has the right to tell me how I ought to speak, to whom I ought to speak, where and how I ought to live, when I ought to die. So I want to encourage you with this teaching in these ways. In particular first of all I want to point this out as we saw there in John 5 18 the religious experts of the day concluded that Jesus was making himself equal with God and that charge Jesus never denied he never said no 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 hold on you misunderstand no, 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 I didn't mean all that. You know, you're bringing more to this than I really intended. No, they said, no, you deserve blasphemy. And Jesus said, you know, acknowledge, yet clearly what I've said would be blasphemy if it weren't true. As a son, he has a demand upon our lives. He has all authority to judge and be the judge of humanity. And he's judging, we know his criteria. He's judging based upon what we do with the words that he said. Do we believe them? Do we believe he's the Christ, the Son of God? He's worthy, therefore, of obedience. This is who he is, the Son of God, this unique Son of God. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of us standing here in a group of people humiliating ourselves with our awful voice and singing the hymn. Sing the hymn, men. I know, I know, I'm I'm one of you. I have a voice for speaking and a face for radio. <laughs> Some of you'll catch up to that one more. But not necessarily a voice for singing. Although, no matter how it sounds and how human appraisal might be, and how humans might judge whether or not I'm, well, he's off key, he's off rhythm, he's off beat, whatever, is no matter. What matters is the humble heart that says, I'm going to do it anyway because he deserves to have me do this. He is worthy of that. He is worthy of our everything that we have. He has the power and authority to give you eternal life. And I want to talk about that for a minute because so many people have reduced the phrase eternal life to mean a ticket to heaven. And they have reduced, therefore, their religion to nothing more than, let's make sure I do the right steps so that at the end of all this, I get to go to heaven. Oh, it's far more than that. That Jesus speaks of eternal life as something present. And we see it as this, that those who repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he takes off the old way of doing things and their their old attitudes and their old habits and their old temptations, and he applies to them new things that bring them joy and life and goodness and blessings, and he makes them a blessing to others. And he rearranges the priorities of those who follow him. Why? Because he's the one who can give life. Life is not merely in the heartbeat or the breath. Life is in what we do to encourage life in others. The spiritual life, the spiritual rebirth. Life is much more than the physical operation of a human body. When he says eternal life, he's talking about life that means something eternally and life whose toil and strife and difficulties have eternal purpose and meaning to them and this is how the believer gets through difficulties no this is not how the believer avoids difficulties because following jesus christ and the gospel brings a whole new host of difficulties but this refers to making a life that goes through even the worst of things with eternal purpose, that it will bring them to Christ or it will bring others to Christ or it will glorify God in the sight of those who are perishing or those who are not perishing. Where eternal life now means a life that's gone from being dust to dust to being dust to glory, as Jesus performed perfectly the will of God, as He says in John five thirty six, says a testimony that I have is greater than at a job John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me. So He came to do the will of God. And he did them, said so that God gave me these works to do and I'm doing them. And that's the witness to who he is. And that would be great. And that would be worthy of, of praise and honor to God. And that would be something that we can go home and meditate on and we can think, boy, that's, that's really great that Jesus did all that the father did. But then Jesus told his disciples You take up your cross and you follow me. And he told them, yeah, you've seen some great works. You're going to see greater. And as a matter of fact, the works of the disciples and the works of his disciples to this day have changed the world. We live in a fundamentally different world because of the impact of the gospel of truth. And because of the work Of the body of Christ. The Son of God is known by his works, and he described his followers. You'll know them by their works. That they will love one another, that they will love neighbor, that they will love God. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good as to send the only unique Son of God, to save us from our sins. For as rebellion began among mankind in the garden, it has continued to this day in each and every heart of each and every human being. And this day, Lord, we call upon you and your spirit to convict us of our sins, give us the faith to repent and to trust the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And those among us, Lord, who have already done that, who have already taken that step, who who walk with you, Lord, cause us to walk with you more. Cause us to cite the example of Jesus Christ who perfectly did your will, who every moment sought your will in prayer and in your word, and who every moment executed it, even to the point of drawing his own execution. We thank you, Lord, that you have granted Jesus Christ, that you have appointed him to this work, and that he sits at your right hand, glorified in heaven with the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. And Lord, he is going to return. And we know he will because he said he will. And we do not know the hour and we do not know the exact manner. But we know with great certainty, as certain as it is that he was here, that he will return and he will judge the world in perfect righteousness. So this day, Lord, I pray that we would have the faith to follow him and to be granted the righteousness of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the time that we've had and we've shared here in John. And Lord, as we continue our study throughout the Gospel of John, illuminate to us all the words that Jesus says and the things that are said about him and around him and help us to understand more fully what it means that he is the Son of God. We thank you, praise you for your wonderful work among the saints by your spirit. And we ask you this day to quicken it to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.